This is Film Tank. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. We're going to make film history. Can you say that again? Just the way you say it. Baby, it's time to lose their head. They won't know what they're looking at, but why they like it, but they'll know they want it. everyone and welcome in to episode 229 of film tank as per usual i am alex diekman along with my usual co-host nick cheney hey 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 how's everybody doing pretty okay i think well that's good yeah i feel like being a dj i'm sorry no yeah you got a new microphone so you're like already i did I've uh, I've said the phrase "Hey, all you cool cats and kittens!" like seventy times into my new microphone. Uh, that's just today, so we'll see what kind of surprises are in store. You're also wearing a uh, Kangol Kangol hat. Is that how you say it? Kangol yeah, hat. Sure. I don't know. Okay. Anyways, also with us on this episode is our friend Anna Bodizado. Hello, thank you so much for having me back, you guys. Yeah, we were just here. We were just here. (laughs) Talking Um, about extraction. I wanted to say that (laughs) at the end of that episode, it sounded like I forgot we were going to do this Snowpiercer episode, and I just wanted to say that that's not true. (laughs) I just needed a reminder. (laughs) Well, for everybody out there, we are going to be talking about Snowpiercer on this episode, so thanks for letting the cat out of the bag. That's great. Oh, okay, then you can just edit this part out. I'm not going to. Oh my god! (laughs) To be fair, I feel like you saying that you didn't forget only makes me think that you forgot. (laughs) It was just so embarrassing to be... It was so embarrassing when Alex was like, well, we're going to record it on this day. And I was like, oh, yeah, we are. <laughs> hey, at least you saw the movie. I liked you saw it. Who, you oh. know. <laughs> oh, boy. The, be- the best was when we uh, were doing a week in review one time and he started talking about the film we were reviewing. It was like, dude, oh, yeah. back, back that off. Well, no, no foreplay never hurt anybody. <laughs> he wanted to get. Get out of the gate quick. That's fine. <laughs> so, yeah, well, yeah. So yes, the uh, the film we are going to be talking about is Bong Joon Ho's Snowpiercer, uh, his first and I believe only English uh, speaking film to date. Uh, Snowpiercer was released uh, in two 2000- thousand. No, okay. Yeah, on Netflix. What's that? Uh, that That's mainly English? I I feel like it's got Jake Gyllenhaal, so I know it's at least a big portion. In okay. Show, so I think it's okay. like a uh, hybrid. Kind of like this, okay. actually. But yeah, anyway. 
Sorry. Yeah, thank you for uh, correcting me. That is <laughs> no, no. I, I'm I'm serious. I mean, I I'd, I'd, I'd like to be right. So that's the only good. one I know of. It's probably his only theatrical uh, English language. Okay, very good. So Snare Piercer um, surrounds a future where a failed climate change experiment has killed all life except for the lucky few who boarded the Snowpiercer, a train that travels around. Around the globe, a new class system emerges. So the film stars Chris Evans as Curtis and also features a slew of other people, including Jamie Bell, Tilda Swinton, also Kane Ho-sung, who uh, you probably saw in Parasite as the, uh, the father of the family. Also here are Octavia Spencer, Ewan Bremer, Ellison Pill, John Hurt, uh, in a late role for him before, uh, unfortunately, he passed away. And a wonderful little performance by Ed Harris. So, Snowpiercer uh, was a film that myself, Nick, and Toussaint went to go see at the theater in 2013. Um, pretty quick after we met at AU, I think. Yeah. Or at least we're like, hanging out as friends. Yeah, so, and definitely was a, uh, you know, interesting, unique experience. What's that? I said I regret it ever since. Oh. Going to AU or or being friends with us or going to the movie? All of the above? (laughs) So, yeah, it's fun to look back on this, that we saw this in the theater. Obviously, this got some good word of mouth when it was out in a pretty limited run. Um, And... I don't, it definitely wasn't something like a John Wick type thing, but got a decent amount of people to be interested in it. And now, obviously, um, director's pretty much a household name, at least for a foreign filmmaker. So there you go. So uh, who wants to go first? Uh, I guess I could go first. Okie dokie. All righty. Um, well, first I want to comment on that hilarious imdb synopsis um as they suggest a quote-unquote new class system emerges on the train um which doesn't seem probably what happened it's probably more of a distilled version of a class system that was already existing before the train anyway i just wanted to put that out there um so yeah, we saw this about, this came out in like 2014, so it's been a good seven-ish years or so. Um, there's so much about this movie that is right up my alley. Um, the fact that it's set entirely on a train, um, the fact that it's kind of hard to pin down as far as what genre it is. I mean, it's obviously slightly sci-fi with technically a dramatic heart but also making room for some moments of uh, not just levity but actual outright comedy Um, all of this is like definitely something I'm pretty much interested in and I, I gotta say when I first saw it back then I was like um you know this is good but I didn't love it and I couldn't quite figure out why haven't watched it since then until now, and I feel like now I have a slightly clearer 
uh, picture as to maybe why it didn't quite grab me. Um, I think this movie is just bizarre at times and not always in a captivating way. Um, I'm going to say some positives, which is that I think the performances for the most part across the board are really good. Uh, if not, I mean, serviceable, but like, I really enjoy Jamie Bell. Um, I really enjoy Allison Pill, especially. Um, and even if I have some problems with the scene itself, I think obviously Ed Harris is a perfect choice for that casting. Um, Chris Evans, I think is actually woefully miscast, but I think he does okay with the material. It's not so much that I don't think he can do it, so much as I just think that was a, uh, uh, maybe a blunder in the casting department because part of me thinks that Chris Evans was the reason why uh, this had American financing um, to begin with. And um, it's funny because when he's doing the more dramatic parts, like the I Know Babies Taste Best monologue, I actually think he's better um, than I even give him credit for. But so much of the film is him just being kind of world-weary and um, kind of silent and, you know, facial tics and whatnot. And I just don't think he's up to that level for me personally. Never once do I think he's bad or anything like that, but I just think he sticks out personally. Um, having said that, I think this premise is ingenious. I know it's obviously based off of a graphic novel, um, but the idea of this entire world uh, being or at least the remnants of it uh, being shoved onto a train due to climate change and then having, you know, a very simplified Marxist version of capitalism uh, overtake the entire train and put everybody in its place. I mean, this is all gold. And as we saw in Parasite, obviously, years later, like, Bong Joon-ho is very prime to take on that subject matter. Um, but I don't think Snowpiercer has completely, I don't know, um, shall we say, done something with its own premise because it depicts it, but I feel like it gets confused almost at every turn about how this happens and or um, how you can actually upend it or even just how it works. And I'm not talking about like plot holes of like, well, how are they only in one train car? Do they never, you know, whatever. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. But some of the plot twists get in the way of, I think, the film's own messages with regards to um, how to fight back and, you know, the upheaval of this kind of society. Um, it, it's such a bizarre choice for me when we get to that ending because as much as I love Ed Harris in it, the idea that he and Gilliam were working together kind of undermines the entire um, story. And normally I'm all for a kind of cynical, nihilistic take on uh, humanity and how easily we can be duped into, um, you know, uh, believing in the best and, you know, giving over to optimism only to be taken advantage of. But... The movie plays some of its cards too close to its chest, so the by the time you truly learn about some of the characters, it, it's a barrage of things you didn't know that color your view on the actual 
narrative and in this case revolution that's happening um, to the point where I just think that it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. In the span of the last half hour, we find out that um, not only was the leader of the um, revolution, the Gilliam character, working with Ed Harris, but he recruited, you know, Curtis, which we did know, but we didn't know that Curtis was technically, I guess, one of the more deviant characters uh, prior to when the film started, uh, and that he was, you know, succumbing to a, a way of violence and eating the weak and whatnot. So, it's, I don't know, I just feel like everything that comes up and crops up in this movie kind of undermines this idea of a class struggle, whereas in Parasite, it makes, in my opinion, perfect sense as to how it can kind of corrupt all. Here, I feel like there were twists for the sake of twists, and by the time you were done with the movie, all you really watched was an action film, and for an action film to be this blunt about its messages and about its uh, class consciousness, um, it needs to think it through a lot more than I think it does. Um, and lastly, I'll say that I think it's very evident that this was based on a graphic novel, and I don't mean that in a pejorative, but when I watched this movie again for the second time, you know, just this past night, um, there were so many times where I'm like, okay, you know what, this is where, you know, this issue, so to speak, I, I don't know if it was, I don't think it was published in uh, floppy, but I think it was an actual standalone graph. But just chapter-wise, I'm like, I could see this being the cliffhanger to carry you over to the next uh, uh, train car, if we're going to be metaphorical. But whereas it's more about the ride than it is about, you know, the connective tissue. And on that level, it's fine. Um, it's certainly fun to watch at times and engaging. But I just found some of these tones and... Uh, narrative choices to be at odds with each other and I can get into more detail about that later but I really think it's just a big old mixed bag it's not all that bad but I also think it kind of sabotages itself uh, at every turn so those are my thoughts <laughs> ah, well done sir as per usual um, so yeah no. <laughs> Alex go ahead <laughs> Are you sure? Uh, I mean, I can I can go next. I mean, I was were ready, you, but you can go if you want. No, no, no. You were ready. I, I heard you. I heard you be ready. You okay. Go, go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Well, I will be a gracious host and go first. Yes. Ah, so, um, first of all, uh, Nikki, you commented on uh, the Jamie Bell, Chris Evans reveal uh, in the Baby's Taste Best scene, which is... Uh, definitely, I think, at least dialogue-wise, the most memorable scene in the film. And I think that is by far the best reveal in the entire film, as I think it's pretty much perfect, in my opinion. And I love everything about the way that that paints a picture, both for what happened beforehand, what we've seen during the film, and what we're going to see following that. Um, and I think that is just a perfect scene, in my opinion, that I'm a huge fan of. Uh, Snowpiercer as a whole, I feel like I'm kind of in the same boat as Nick in that I feel like I was a little tougher on this this time through. Um, this is the third time I've seen it, 
And each time I've watched this, I feel like I've liked it a little, little bit less. But that being said, I still think this is quite good and very imaginative. And I think that is great. And it makes it a lot easier to watch the first hour of this film because you are watching this story that is pretty captivating, uh, especially when you're just trying to get the lay of the land and find out exactly what's going on. Um, as, as we move on throughout the film, it does get a little more... It's hard because I feel like there's about like 480 train cars on this enormous train. And we spend the first 45 minutes in the first three, and then they like zoom past the next 476 in like 25 minutes, and then they're at the engine. And whatever. I mean, you got to do what you got to do. It's, you know, not about those people and those train cars. At the same time, um, I feel like it's really difficult for me to really feel authentic of them just like running through all these different places. And yeah, you get to have a good glimpse of it, but um, I feel like it also doesn't pacing wise pay off very well. I will say one thing and I, I, I don't want to be nitpicky on story points, especially in a very, um, you know, bizarre film like this is. is Yes. Um, but I have to say, I think that people on this train were burying the lead a little bit because like they didn't love Wilford, but that dude built a train that went all the way around the world. Like, I'm sorry, but there's parts of the ocean that are seven miles deep for a while and he built a train that went over that. <laughs> I, I got to say, like, obviously he's got a really terrible God complex, but, and he did all this. Well, before the climate change thing happened, he did it. Like how many hundreds of trillions of dollars did this cost to make this happen? And uh, how, how much red tape was, there to just put a train over someone's property i don't know i mean you got to just suspend disbelief on that but at the same time i love the video in the allison pill scene i mean that whole scene is gold but that video like showing the route that it goes on i'm like who was able to put this together holy shit ah i don't know that bothered you and i mean that in a way like i i can actually kind of see that um but for me my straw was the fact that jamie bell was apparently supposed to be a baby when chris evans was 17 <laughs> well yeah i mean they're pretty close they're in age aren't three they? years apart <laughs> that is actually worse than when people were saying the thing about vanessa kirby and jason statham being like children, brother and sister, even though they're like 30 years. Because guess what? That's a movie where cars are basically about to go to space in the next century. So, uh, yeah. 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 I mean, uh, so there's all kinds of things like that here. And, and, and it's fine. I mean, in, in general, I, I didn't care or anything like that. But I just found myself thinking about it multiple times while I'm watching this. I'm like, man, 
who is building this in the ocean? I want to, I want to find out who those people are. Holy shit. So, so many moments in here that are just golden. Um, the scene when they go, uh, when they're fighting in the hand to hand combat against all of the guys who look like the, um, main crony villain from Shrek, uh, in the, uh, train scene where they're under the tunnel and they have the night vision and they bring in the uh all the fire to fight through that i mean that's just an awesome like top-notch level of um not just fight sequencing but also beautiful cinematography and obviously a somewhat constrained budget um and there's so many moments like that that make this a really fun thrill ride to go through But, you know, then there are other plot points that are just awkward, like the security guards who are, like, laying on each other's shoulders and everything. It's just like, okay, that's an interesting character detail. And another thing that's kind of weird is Tilda Swinton's character, which I think that she's weird to be weird. And it just doesn't really work for me because I appreciate what that character is supposed to be doing, but at the same time her bizarre accent and the way she speaks and all that. I'm just like, all right, I get what you're going for, but you know, whatever. So overall, I think um, I really do enjoy this. Not like really, really, but I do enjoy this. I'm kind of with Nick that I feel like this is a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, I will say that there is a moment early on in this film that I thought is just terrific in a terrible saw type way. And that is when they put the guy's arm outside of the train for seven minutes and then bring him back in and then knock it off with a sledgehammer. That is fucking cold. Uh-huh. Um, yes. And also, too, just the idea of that is that is an unfortunately perfect way of torture. Both you're getting to cut his arm off and force him to have a long-term injury, but also making him suffer in multiple ways because of the elements outside, which you're trying to say is why you're saving him and forcing him to do this. Ooh, that's deep. I don't know. I'm a fan. I thought this was a very good film, and uh, I'll let Anna take it. All right. Um, well, I apologize for... First of all, cutting you off earlier. Um, no, no, you're good. I'm the one. I should have let you go, but I was like ready, so I'm sorry about that. A okay. Do not apologize. So, um, this was actually my first viewing out of everyone talking about this movie today. Um, I had been actually wanting to watch this for quite some time, and so I was really happy when Alex asked uh, to do an episode on it because then I was like yes I can finally watch it for some reason it never uh, materialized for me Um, I also have seen Parasite by Bong Joon-ho which is his newest one and then I remember liking The Host when that came out too I've seen that a long time and I um, would like to watch it again but basically I really like the things I've seen by Bong Joon-ho so I um also really liked Snowpiercer. Um, I think it's funny how Alex brought up the Baby's Taste Best monologue because I had seen that circulating around the internet every now and then in relation to this film, but I had no other context about this film. Like, I had no idea it took place on a train. I didn't know it was, you know, in the future 
Doctor. I didn't know they were the last people on Earth, etc. But I knew that line eventually was going to, like, come into play. So that had that had me looking forward to it. And I didn't necessarily think that was a spoiler. Um, so I also agree with what uh, Nick said about how you can tell this film is based on a graphic novel. And I also don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um because you could kind of see like the structure and then the way um, the imagery like drastically tra- changes from car to car to car. Uh, and the fact that this train of evidently has like 400 cars in it. Um, it reminded me how, at least me personally, I can tell when feature films are based on plays. And I feel like that's, once you can kind of see that in a film, it's like something that doesn't really go away. It's just more so um, that in particular, it's like the setting and then the way the characters interact with each other. Um, That's how I could tell. And then at least with this one in particular, you could kind of get the feeling that it was based on a graphic novel. Um, So I just really liked the way that this film was set up. I liked the pacing of it. I liked how once you get toward the end of the film, I want to say maybe like the last third of it, you get the impression that not only does the tail end of the train stay at the tail end, unless they're like forced to leave for one reason or another, you get the impression that people in the club train, that's just kind of what they do. And then people in the salon train, that's kind of what they do too. And then maybe once you get like more in the upper class parts of the train, you feel free to move as you like. But it's just funny that it, to me, it got, um, it gave me that impression. Um, so I also noticed that this was post Captain America first Avenger for Chris Evans. Um, And while he has been in, you know, other films, obviously, that were not Captain America, um, I do kind of agree with what Nick said about how Chris Evans, like, the super dramatic, layery, meaty roles are just, at this point in time, I mean, this was seven years ago, they're not really something he could grasp onto as well. I know that he is in like some Apple TV series right now that I guess is super dramatic. So I think that's where he's kind of crafting his skill a little bit more. Um, Honestly, I thought Jamie Bell was like my favorite part of this film. I have a very soft spot for him. Um, I was very sad when he was uh, ultimately sacrificed um, because that kind of goes full circle because Chris Evans' character talks about how he didn't sacrifice Jamie Bell's character when he was a child. Um, so it's like he had to be at that fork and road twice in his own life. Um, and yeah, I thought just, um, I thought everything about this film was really cool. It just, it took you to a bunch of places where you didn't expect, and then you see... Um, things like Song Kang Ho's character noticed that the snow is actually melting outside. So there's a possibility that um, the world can return to what it once was, which is good because it provides characters hope. Um, And I, I also wanted to say before I forget, there is a character from the show Skins. And when I recognized him, I was like, oh my God, 
That guy is from the show Skins. He is the character named Gray. He doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue. He has, like, darker skin and black hair, and he does a lot of hand-to-hand combat. I believe he's a character that dies in the spa train. Does this ring a bell to you guys? <laughs> um, but anyway, so I was really happy when I saw Is he, just out of curiosity... Um... I think he's, like, shirtless. In in like most of it. Okay, then I'm thinking I'm thinking of somebody else then. Okay, I'm trying to describe his appearance as, as best as I can, when but you like say skins, he, are you talking about the uh, British show? Ad? Okay, the British show. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, hmm. um, the British television show that hasn't been on for years, but was on for quite some time. You would recognize a lot of people from that show. Um, Nicholas Holt, and then um, what's her face? She was in the. Pirates of the Caribbean films at one Kira point. Kira Knightley? Not Kira Knightley. Uh, um, oh my god. Chaos Go Delario. Um, Who? Okay. See? Come on, okay. Alex. <laughs> I'm a Pirates of the Caribbean aficionado and I have no idea who that is. I think she was in she was either in At World's End or the one after that. Oh, was, I think I know. She she was in the most recent one, I think. It. Yeah, she was in the She most was recent. Captain Barbosa's daughter. Spoiler. Oh, awkward. Yeah, I just remember she that was like fucked. the girl. <laughs> what was that? Is that guy fucked? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was a he was a ghost for like 40 years, but apparently eventually he was able to Yep. Wow. <laughs> Imagine um, someone asking, like, oh, you can have kids? And be like, uh... Yar! Sorry. <laughs> Never mind. I was going to go on to a whole <laughs> detour of him being like, you know, yeah, I can have kids. You're, you... Never mind. It was, it was a very elaborate thread that I've completely lost, but it was going to be a ridiculous homage to the you best start believing in ghost stories because you're in one now. But to somebody he impregnated anyway (laughs) (laughs) oh man i love that um but yeah she was the girl that they plucked into the story after kira knightley just straight up pieced um but yeah so it was so cool to just see that one actor um so yeah i those are my opening thoughts on the film um i i liked even though the pacing was kind of a little odd at times. I overall generally liked the structure of the story and how the goal was ultimately to get to the front from the end. So, yeah, I really like this. Yeah, while we're uh, talking about random people who showed up, the uh, bald guy who's bringing the wheelbarrow full of eggs around is the guy who played Caliban in X-Men Apocalypse. So, oh, I knew he looked familiar. There's that for you. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yep, okay. I was just like, I know that bald guy. <laughs> there it is. One thing I would like to talk about is um, how, and I'm not going to necessarily speak about, uh, obviously, the graphic novel because I haven't read it, so I'm only talking about it as the script of the film portrays it. But if you're going to mm-hmm. tell a class-conscious story like this and you're going to use climate change, as almost your impetus and your catalyst for what drives this uh, entire uh, 
deterioration of society and transformation into a whole new, you know, locale and whatnot. It's almost antithetical to essentially end your movie with even the faintest hint of like, but maybe it was a hoax. Um, like, I know it's technically, I think, going for the idea that the climate change was a problem, but now it's no longer a problem. But I, there's so many things we don't see about, you know, this world and whatnot that there's just too many, I don't know, there's too many moments where, like, the image of the, uh, I think it's, like, the polar bear, right? Where, um, when I look out the window, um, and, and I'm just, like, trying to figure out, like, it almost seems like the entire movie has, especially the character played um, by Kong Sanhu Ho, um, is questioning it almost the whole time to the point where it almost seems like a conspiracy theory. Um, and it's, I, I can totally understand why they would get on the train at one point because it got so bad and now they can get off, but obviously they can if the trains continue to go and they have no real means to survive. But it's such a weirdly at odds feeling for me that the entire ending hinges on something that could be grossly misinterpreted. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have lots of weird feelings about just the story at large at this film with this film like a part of me just feels like obviously Wilford does not want people to think that you can live outside because he doesn't want you to get off his train um, and at the same time I also have this weird feeling that like somehow he initiated this climate change thing that killed most people so they were forced to have a small society on his train because he seems like a complete psychopath. Uh, I agree, which is why it's weird that like the idea of it being climate change is such a real world uh, analog. So where I, I almost would have appreciated more if it was like one day they woke up and gravity doesn't work outside of like metal or just something random that we don't have to be like, oh, that could happen, you know, whatever. Yeah, and you could really ascribe that to anything, whether it be a random event, or you could say, "Oh, it's because some dickhead turned off the gravity switch," you know. Whatever. <laughs> um, but because of the whole, and they say it quite a bit, you know, climate change um, uh, thing, it just becomes a little too rooted in reality. So then I think it does have not necessarily a responsibility, but it should have uh, as much of a conscious about that than it does about its uh, class systems. But that's just me. I will say also the idea of a climate change cure instead of actually just doing things to help it is the most American thing I've ever heard. Um, yeah. 100%. I'm just like, we'll just turn the machine off that will reverse it. And it's like, ah, good luck. Um, yeah, but I, I feel like obviously the ending scene tries to say way more about actual climate change than about the story, uh, which is, I agree, kind of weird because it is really just a backdrop to what's going on here. So having your final image be like, like this idea of seeing this still living polar bear, which obviously is giving you hope for living, but also at the same time being like, look, we saved the polar bears because the world isn't on fire anymore. Um, so it's, it's kind of a, a weird spot and kind of a weird 
weird way to end the film. I, I feel like maybe I'm just an ass, but I kind of wanted the train, train crash to happen and it should just ended there. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you were saying earlier about um, potentially Wilford having caused this climate crisis in the classroom scene with Allison Pill and they're introducing the video of like the structure of the train and the nature of it. She does explain that Wilford did know that the climate crisis was going to happen. I think the detail is like something was supposed to prevent it and it failed. So Wilford knew that the climate crisis was going to happen. So he started construction on the train ever so early in order to make it run by the time. Yeah, that felt like... Donald Trump's press secretary. (laughs) I mean... That's just how they framed it. And even when I was watching it, I mean, I do agree with you. I was like, ooh, really? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the whole Allison Pill scene is fantastic. And from start to finish, just everything with the kids and the song they're singing, and even Tilda Swinton, who is my favorite character in the film, like when she starts singing along with everybody and moving her arms and whatever... I mean, that's just delightful. And then the little video that goes along with it, I just love it every time. But yes, the video that's explaining the story and her explanation of what's going on doesn't seem entirely authentic. And actually, that brings me to something Nick mentioned in his opening thoughts that I would like to comment on. Um, And that's the idea of the description of the relationship between um, Wilford and Gilliam. Because although I do think that there was communication between the front and the back of the train, um, I feel like we didn't necessarily get the whole story from Wilford. I think he presented this very um, slanted view of what happened with Gilliam that he thought would get the result that he was looking for. And it didn't work out, obviously. Um, But I think the idea that that is a completely truthful explanation of what happened, um, I don't really know about that. So my rebuttal is, what does he get out of lying? I mean... I mean, he lies all the time about what's going on on the train. So, like, uh, mentioning with the uh, Allison Pill scene, that video of what's happening, that's totally fabricated. Like, uh, I guess, in my opinion, just this, this propaganda that he is touting is obviously, at least in my opinion, total bullshit. So what what makes this any different of him not just trying to craft a response that he's looking for to what he's been doing this whole time? But that's just my reading on it. It doesn't make it right. It's just, um, just the way I took away from the film. So was he sending those notes for what purpose then? I mean... I'm not saying again. I'm not saying that that he's not speaking some level of truth. I just feel like 
he could be manipulating certain parts of what actually transpired to attempt to elicit a very specific reaction out of Curtis's character. Um, because I don't think he's really someone who bends to the truth. I would say that everything you're saying makes perfect sense to me. My, my biggest hang-up is that everything you're saying <laughs> would apply to a normal movie <laughs> um, with a firmer grasp, I think, on its characters and narrative, whereas I really don't think Snowpiercer is a normal movie, and so I almost feel like every time it makes a joke, I'm supposed to laugh. Every time it, you know, does one of these dramatic reveals, I'm supposed to be shocked. And frankly, I kind of take that final confrontation between them at face value because I'm not really given a roadmap before that moment to truly go off the beaten path and form my own, I think, I don't know, um, you know, reconciliation with what I think these characters have been doing off screen or not being said you know it's a movie where Chris Evans literally almost shouts I know that baby tastes best so I, I tend to take the script uh, at face value because I don't know that the movie's really earned that kind of uh, convoluted nuance from my personal viewing uh, you know experience at least but I, I basically I agree with you. Yeah, I, I feel like I would agree with what you're saying as well. But I feel like the only character who is crafted and crafted for me is Wilford. Because even though we only see him in the last 15 minutes of this film for the most part, there's mentions of him throughout the entirety of the film and everything about his life and his you know, his ego and his person that, you know, is this larger than life figure. And then literally he's, he's like the wizard, uh, totally hiding behind this final wall. That's literally a bank vault that's keeping him in there. Um, so, and yeah, that bathrobe is really something I, I will say. <laughs> it's just heat. I was going to say, now that you mentioned that, it's like a perfect visual juxtaposition of the appearance of Chris Evans when he enters that scene and then the pure, like, relaxation and the subtle opulence that, like, that bathrobe, Wilford wearing that bathroom, like, sends. It's tough for me. It's cold up here. It's noisy. Yeah. It's I know. And it's just, it's so funny because that's, like, the most inconvenience, like, he has ever experienced on the train. It's just like a, a perfect like contrast right there that I thought was funny. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, sorry. The way Ed Harris plays it. Uh, what are you going to say, Alex? No, I was going to say you had something to say, Nick. Go ahead. All I was going to say, too, was that the only other reason why I kind of take it at face value is the other thing is that if we believe him, let's say, as a thought experiment... Um, it does fit in line with the idea that this was all orchestrated, uh, at least partly. And he even admits that it went wrong at a certain point um, because he said they were only supposed to get as far as, you know, whatever car. Because at the end of the day, he is trying to basically find a successor. So the idea that 
Gilliam was uh, integral in recruiting Curtis, and Wilford needs a successor, and thinking that the only way to do that is to, to trust someone to basically, I think, in my opinion, to take advantage of someone who has it so bad, but who's also prone to violence uh, and preying on the weak. Uh, it makes too much sense that he is working with Gilliam and whatnot, to the point where if he's not, then it, I mean, what's his plan for when he dies? I mean, I know he doesn't truly probably care about, like, life after death, but also all these egomaniacs, and this one included, is trying to figure out how to outlive their own, you know, body and create a legacy. Yeah, this this film doesn't really have time for for a lot of stuff like that though, and that's the that's the it's the interesting part. You kind of just have to fill those gaps if you want to yourself. Um, that's why and, I'm actually kind of excited for the TNT show. Like I know TNT gets a bad rap, but um, if done right, it could be good comfort food television. Actually, hmm. premieres uh, later this month. I thought it already had like it was already airing, but it actually airs this month. So something yeah, to look forward to. Very excited when Anna you'd pick this because I had been wanting to rewatch it, and then before the show came out, I wanted to. So it was perfect timing. Yay! Woo! Uh, so I mentioned earlier uh, the scene that happens uh, when they are under the tunnel, going through with the uh, night vision, and then they um, have the torches uh, as the fire is kind of flying around the guys with night vision. It's a great scene. It's beautiful. Uh, very well done and shot as well. Um, very interested to hear everyone's thoughts on the violence in this film. Cause I feel like this film is very violent, but has a, a really weird look on things. Like I feel like for all the gore we see in this, like there's not really too much of like wanting to look away from the screen because you just saw some guy's brains get exploded. Like, I feel like there's a lot of blood shooting up from the floor and onto windows and things like that. But the violence in here, weirdly enough, even though there's a lot of it, I feel like mostly happens outside of the, uh, the viewer's actual viewpoint. Um, that is a good point to bring up, especially because, I mean, the last film that we all watched uh, separately together was Extraction, and that violence in that film was much different than this. Um, there were a handful of moments I wanted to look away from the screen in Extraction, and I never felt that watching Snowpiercer. Um, I notice, especially with Bong Joon-ho's films, is that... I think there's a certain timing that he sets up with the way the shots are taken and the way the hits are done. It's like each one of them packs a punch literally and figuratively, but some of them are so subtle. And then some of them are like straight hand to hand combat, like the swinging never stops. And I think that setup is so interesting because you don't see that too often. Like you don't even at least in for me, I don't think you see that commonly with American directors. I feel like he kind of has it down to like his own style. Um, I will say, I mean, I mentioned this earlier, like my 
um, the scene that stands out to me the most, actually one of two, is when uh, Jamie Bell's character dies because there's lots of like symbolism and heart in that scene. And then um, what's also really gruesome is at the very end when Chris Evans loses his arm. And you, like Alex had mentioned, um, you don't see that super duper up close. You see that really subtly and it is outside of the audience's viewpoint, but like the sound effect is there. Like you see a little bit of blood, like the subtlety is there and the implication is there. So um, I just think it's, it was really interesting how this all was set up in terms of the violence. Yeah. I, um, I would say that I think Alex is onto something as, and you are as well in the sense that this is a weird hybrid because um, Korean cinema in general is known for recently within the last 20 years or so having a very uh, brutal output of uh, violence and extremity in at least a portion of their cinema and um, so to have this kind of co-production of you know, uh, American financiers and uh, Bong Joon-ho, uh, you know, at the helm here, is a weird mixture that doesn't always work for me because sometimes I find it cartoonish um, where we're seeing extremely brutal things but we're also not being asked to truly process it, which is weird because the entire story revolves around a bunch of grief-stricken and trauma survivors, essentially, uh, passengers who are trying to, you know, get to the front any way they can. And when we're asked to completely put ourselves in their shoes and, and you know, their plight, um, it's weird to see it kind of flinch at certain points when I don't think it should um because it is a, a, a brutal film in so many ways, as far as like there are some moments of where characters do something crazy and brutal, and yet um, almost every you know moment is either, as Alex pointed out, you know, cut away from or shot with such a weird bent, whether it's like a weird slow mo thing or. Um, whether it's kind of cross-cutting between uh, the action and the person's reaction. So um, it's clearly a choice, uh, <laughs> and it's not a, necessarily a bad one, but it's not one that I think serves the material. Agreed. <laughs> um, uh, I posed the last question, but I will pose another one. Uh, Nick, you mentioned... <laughs> Nick, you mentioned that there is comedy throughout this film, and I uh, agree Some with that. Works. Yeah, um, <laughs> there are moments that are quite—I uh, don't want to say hilarious. Uh, unlike in *Parasite*, where I was like hysterically laughing at a couple moments, but I definitely thought there was a couple chuckles here. But um, yes, there are some moments that don't land, which I feel like I can understand because English script and somewhat different culture uh, you're going to have some and also the actors delivering the lines uh, you're going to have some weird tonal things there but what did everybody think about uh, this film's 
breakup of its very depressing content with uh, somewhat unusual comedy. Um, I thought that it makes... I thought that the juxtaposition was placed well. Um, that includes the timing and then the characters that were saying it, the, the characters that were delivering the comedic context. Um, I think that I believe I know what you're referring to. It is, uh, Tilda Swinton's character and then Alison Pill's character. Um, they have like the, the dark comedy moments. Um, and I think it makes sense because, um, like, for the most part, they're the characters that are, like, dressed in bright colors. And they have, like, their cadence. And Tilda Swinton, mostly, we do see her in the context of being in the dark, dirty tail part of the train. And then also, I, I'm not sure if this was meant to be funny, but this was funny to me. When they discover the sushi bar inside the fish train. Um and Tilda Swinton gets bullied into eating a protein block instead of enjoying a delicious meal of sushi like everybody else does. Um, I thought it was okay. I didn't think it was overdone. Um, and upon seeing like a kooky looking character like Tilda Swinton, I you pretty much know that what she was going to be pegged as. And fun fact, that was actually written to be John C. Riley, and then he didn't end up doing it, so they gave the part to Tilda Swinton. Mm. So. Okay. That, that explains a lot. <laughs> I'm picturing like a John C. Riley uh, in the vein of something like him in Kong Skull Island. Oh, yeah. You know, like where he's hamming it up. But technically in that movie, he's also fitting in. Like Tilda Swinton goes outside of everybody's orbit here. Yeah, I mean, she that, that's such a weird character because... I mean, she's there as as a hateable person for the audience to like grab onto. Um, my wife Emily brought up the uh, name Umbridge from Harry Potter. Yes, uh, her feelings about that character. Um, but I feel like it was also kind of weird that she did get killed off when she did because I feel like as a person watching, like that's when I wanted her to be no longer in the film. And usually I feel like those characters stick around past their, uh, past their prime. So I was, I was interested that they decided to uh, cut the cord at that point, but at the same time, um, fine with that as well. Yeah. I, as far as the comedy goes in this movie, like I would say like for the most part, I'm on board, but then, there are just little moments that kind of irked me where I thought that that was just fucking stupid. Like, I'm actually okay with... Well, first of all, if I haven't said it yet on the podcast, I'll just say that Allison Pill is my favorite character in this movie, and that sequence is my favorite sequence. So I'm totally on board <laughs> uh, for, <laughs> you know, this kind of over-the-top... Uh, in fact, I wish there was a little more in that vein, at least in the way she was doing it. Um... But there were moments in which the survivors were making jokes, not in a way that I thought was like, oh, they're just trying to well, literally survive and, you know, just get through the day. But in a way where I thought that the camera quite literally was waiting to cut after they made their punchline. 
um, in very weirdly bizarre ways. My my biggest one is, um, and it's not even that big of a line, but it just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, where during the school scene, which is one of the the school car scene, which is one of the most obviously exaggerated scenes, and whatnot, and I love it. Um, but the moment they bring out the violin player from the uh, that we had met earlier in the film from the uh, you know early cars. Uh, and Octavia Spencer randomly says, damn, Gary looks good. And I'm like, are we in an episode of The Office? Like, this is their friend <laughs> that was literally kidnapped and taken from them. And now he is either brainwashed or, you know, giving himself over. Like, nothing about that is funny. And it's, it's horrific in and of itself. So the idea that a character would make that joke just makes no no sense to me whatsoever and there were a few other moments like that where i just kind of was like i'm not against dark comedy or even levity in these kind of movies or in any kind of movie really but they also have to be grounded in character where it would make sense as to why a character would do this or say this and whatnot and there were at least a few moments where uh that just did not work for me at all to the point where i was like taken out of the movie Yeah, 100%. I, uh, I'm, I'm with you there. And on that scene specifically, that's so weird that that's what they like chose that for. Like the kids getting taken and then they're obviously in the final scene. That that really landed and uh, you know worked well to the film's structure. But the violin player getting like torn away from his wife and then he's in like a brief five-second scene where – the whole point is to have that Octavia Spencer line is, is very bizarre. So anything else anybody wanted to hit on before we uh, close this out? Um, I think it's funny, not necessarily funny, but um, <laughs> I'm wondering what the characterization would have been like for Song Kang Ho's character and also his daughter had they not had that interesting addiction to like the industrial waste um aside for that being like their motivation to their leverage to grant the other characters access to the train and then i I guess you know as we progress through the train the club people are also doing that i don't know i just thought that was so odd uh that was i guess people even struggle with addiction on a train when you're the last survivors on earth yeah i mean well, it it makes sense, and it. Oh, sorry. I was gonna say, technically, doesn't the twist erase the idea that they were addicted? I think he has a line where he says that he he does it as well, but he's also collecting it to make an explosive. Oh, okay. I guess I missed that part. You missed the part where they blew up the door? No, no, no. Not the part where they blew up the door. The the part that Nick mentioned where there's a twist that he actually wasn't. He was just collecting it. I mean, no. basically, maybe I'm being generous when I go on a twist, but there's an exchange in which he reveals that he has a lot of those clumps, and apparently he has not been doing any of the ones that they have been giving him because he was saving them all up to make the bomb. So I guess maybe he was an addict in his past life, but I really don't see how um, rehab works on this train. Hmm. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with on that i think the that whole storyline was kind of just not flat but it didn't really land for me as well as the other storylines did like i think chris evans is actually pretty good in this film uh and i as the film wears on i think his performance gets better uh that scene with the the scene with the explanation of him talking uh right before they're entering Wilford's palace uh, and, and he's describing, you know, the early days of the train uh, again for me is the best scene of the film. And I, I just think he, uh, his, his character gets stronger, but that storyline for me just starts off bizarre with them getting pulled out of the morgue uh, drawers. Um, and then their, their storyline is really, I feel like somewhat understated throughout and I guess that's purposeful, but um, so, you know, we, I, we we end in a place where she is one of the last survivors with Octavia Spencer's son, um, and and I, I, I don't know, I just kind of didn't get fully on board, haha, with that story. Did they ever? I know they didn't explicitly say it, or at least I don't think they did. But I I know this is bad because I just watched the last night, but I don't remember did they mention what happened to her mother or did they imply for some weird reason i got the vibe and this is not even really in any kind of concrete evidence but that there was almost an idea that the guy was suggesting that the mother was one of the seven yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I, I wanted to make sure because I, I, I couldn't remember if that was something I dreamed or if <laughs> I was reading into it. Okay. All right. Never mind then. I guess that's just a thing. Um, I will say I very much enjoyed Jamie Bell in this, um, like Anna did. I, mm-hmm. He's probably my favorite character that exists for more than one scene, uh, you know, other than Alice and Pill. Um, I will say that the one of my biggest problems structurally is that this is a two-hour movie and the first hour is devoted entirely to lower class train cars that all look the same so by the time the first hour is over and we get to a more visually dynamic uh you know passage of the train cars I can understand why they need to speed it up a little bit, but I almost wish they didn't spend as much in the lower car, like just in those physical spaces, because they could have told the same story uh, on the move, so to speak. Um, And we could have had a lot more playfulness with some of the various train cars that they presumably went through, but we never got to see, which is basically something that Alex kind of mentioned earlier, but I guess I just wanted to reiterate uh, that I felt the same way. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that led to my pacing problem with this film because I feel like even though that's just the background of it, it really makes this, the whole, you know, middle 30 minutes of this film seem totally rushed. Um, and yet it's and you get, one of the better parts of the movie, which is weird. Yeah, I agree. Um, but I, I wanted to spend a little bit more time in like the hairdresser. And I guess like we don't need to spend more time there, but at the same time, um, you know, you have, these moments where you're just flashing by all of these things. And I guess that, that it works to the film's credit 
because you don't have to hash out characters or anything like that in those stops along the train. But at the same time, as a viewer, um, I'm a little intrigued. And I guess maybe that I should watch the Snowpiercer series then. I think that's definitely why I'm at least excited to see what the series is like. Because if I have one big, looming, not necessarily criticism, but thing I think about when I think of Snowpiercer the movie is that there could have been more. And even if I wasn't exactly happy with everything that happens in the movie, uh, I feel like some of that problem would have just been at least addressed if we just got more. Well, you'll get your chance in a way. Okay. Should I go into final rating? Sure, man. Make it happen. Alright. Choo-choo. I give Snowpiercer a sexy two and a half out of five stars. Not quite up to, uh... <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, but I was thinking of the phrase, like, up to snuff, and I'm just, like, thinking about snuff films, and I'm just like, that's a gross phrase. Anyway. <laughs> um... <laughs> Oh, the English language. Um, I, I give Snowpiercer two and a half out of five. I, it's a big, big old mixed bag, uh, which I said before, and I'll say it again, damn it. Um, because I genuinely do like quite a bit of what's in this movie. I just don't think it was particularly um, the best version of what it could be. So I could watch this movie like, you know, once a year, maybe not, maybe once every two years or whatever. But like I would revisit this and I probably will because I kind of was astonished. I told Alex uh, that when I went to watch this, I hadn't seen this in the theater and yet I surprised myself because I had the Blu-ray on my shelf and I don't remember buying it. So it's clearly something that like sticks in my mind. Um, but I definitely think that the uh, the scenes in the movie are more engaging than the actual whole that they add up to. So two and a half out of five for me. Right on. I thought this was pretty enjoyable, and I go back and forth on my rating on this, and I'm going to stick with the lower rating for now, just because there are certainly some problems with this film, uh, both from uh, story-wise and also from uh, actual structure and elements. So I'm going to give this a three out of five. Uh, but I do think that this film is super unique uh, and also brings a really intriguing storyline uh, to the table and just doesn't totally land uh, on its attempt. Um, I do think, and not necessarily totally because this is a Harvey Weinstein-produced film, uh, but at the same time, um, I think there was some struggles with Baldwin uh, and and uh, the film's financers, uh, which would kind of be unfortunately understandable. Uh, but at the same time, interesting to see what the ultimate picture ended up being, and, and wonder what it would have looked like with his actual total vision of, of what this would be. Um, I guess no one will ever know. But at the same time, 
Um, this is still a very enjoyable film and, and one that I liked and I've liked every time, but I've liked a little bit less every time. So three out of five for me for Snowpiercer. Cool. Um, so I actually looked at my, my letterbox reading for Snowpiercer and I had to do a double take because I could not remember why I gave it the rating I did. Um, and I actually changed it. So I am giving this a three out of five because it was a super enjoyable sci-fi film. I think this, um, in terms of just that genre alone, not like regarding the drama or the action part of it, I think this was super cool and super well done. Um, I liked all of the mystery behind it. Um, I liked all of the sequences that we see. And I liked um, the characters, too. Um, I don't think that, um, or rather, I should start my sentence over again. <laughs> it was kind of relieving getting through the pacing of this film because I was getting a little overwhelmed by um, how many characters there were and what their individual motivations were. Um, and of course it was disheartening when people slowly started dying. Um, but it just, um, what am I trying to say here? Um, I like that the, based on the way the story was set up, we get to the ending of the film and it's just, you know, the main character and then the antagonist. And then the very, very end, it's two uh, supporting characters, one not even supporting, he's more so just a plot device, and then they end up surviving, as far as we know. Um, so, yeah, uh, I liked how most people here were drawn up. Um, I forgot to mention that John Hurt has a very soft spot in my heart. Um, so when I saw that he was in this film, I was really happy to see him because he's always a pleasure to see on screen. Um, so yeah, three out of five for me. Wonderful. Yeah. John Hurt is a, certainly a, uh, wonderful performer. Uh, I would say he's uh, he's obviously done a lot of work throughout his career. Um, obviously passed away in 2017, but yeah, he's he's uh, for the most part. I haven't seen many roles with him that I was like, nah. So I'm I'm a fan. Yeah, I really liked him. Him, you know, for what he usually plays, um, I feel like his role in Beaver Vendetta was so against type for him. It was very unusual to see him in that very loud, shouty, communist leader type role. I thought it was very bizarre. Mm-hmm. I remember that vividly, yes. Yeah. So. I uh, love, just really quickly, I want to throw this out there. Uh, I love John Hurt as well, and I love him so much that, honestly, my personal favorite role is uh, his role as the narrator in one of my all-time favorite movies, Dogville, by Lars von Trier. Uh, hmm. Because that's just how much I like. I could just listen to his British voice, soothing, like almost like he's narrating Harry Potter, except it's not. It's a it's a fable about Nicole Kidman being raped. So, like that's just how weirdly soothing of a presence uh, John Hurt had. I think. Agreed. 
you said other than all the things you specific, specifically said about that film, but uh, his soothing presence. Yeah, you've been telling us we need to watch it someday. So because of those actions. But. <laughs> if anyone out there has any thoughts on uh, not Nicole Kidman's uh, rape film Dogville, but on Snowpiercer, feel free to send them on to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com or, or find us on Facebook or Twitter at Film Tank Show. Not quite sure what we're going to be doing on our next episode. Um, we'll get it sorted out and um, certainly we'll be yeah, looking forward to talk to everybody again here in uh, the next week or so. So, um, from... Nick Cheney, Anna Bodazadu, myself, Alex Diekman. As always, thank you very much to everybody for listening to us here at Film Tank. We'll be catching up with you next time. <laughs>